The question for us this morning is, what is the purpose of the church? What's the purpose of the church? Is it, is it the purpose of the church to give you meaning in life? Is it to be the place where you can feel belong, uh, give you a sense of belonging? Is it a place where you can feel socially accepted? Use your gifts. Is the point of the church merely just a social club where you get to hang out with those who are like you? Is the purpose of the church to give to a needy world? Is the purpose of the church to express some old, outdated thinking? Is the purpose of the church to be a centerpiece in the community, making the community notably better? Is the purpose of the church about you? What is the purpose of the church? Is the church the building? We, we've settled that right back in uh, preschool, where we, we learned in Sunday school that to cross our fingers and uh, make a steeple and look inside, and there's the people. <laughs> and all the conversations about the church not being brick and mortar, it's not a place, it's a people. We all know the cliches, we all know the little phrases, and we embrace them, but is the church merely just a gathering of people? Where they sit and sing a couple songs and, and hear one guy talk for way too long. <laughs> What's the purpose of the church? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, it is to have a singular focus. And that is to display the glory of Christ to a watching world. The church historically has understood its role in society to be a mirror, a reflection, not of the world around it, not even of the community in which it finds itself, but it is to be a picture of the glories of heaven where Christ is the central person of its Attention and worship. It is a place where the living God is made manifest. It is a place where God's glory is displayed. Historically, Christians have tried to capture this purpose through architecture. High ceilings. Open doorways. Grandness and greatness. But it is not merely through the building that the glory of God is displayed, but it is through the people. That God is uniting together into a family of people who would not naturally and normally cross paths. In other words, the gathering of the church is to be so unexplainable, so weird, so abnormal that only the gospel could explain it. That young people and old people, rich people and poor people, white people and black people, people of all different ethnicities would get together in one particular place and have a common confession. Because, brothers and sisters, you understand that even the world tries to replicate that, but they can't do it. Even in the, the, the stadium where the Ravens play, there is not complete unity. Though it tries. Because one thing I've realized here in Baltimore is that Washington Redskins is not a team one should root for. Even though it's in the same state. You see, we try to create unity, but even in the midst of that, it fails. Only in the church is genuine unity put on display. But we will see this morning, it is not unity for unity's sake. 
That the church is to display the glories of God through some common practices. Through order, not disorder. What unites us is what we believe and how we live. And this is what Paul has been writing about. Paul here in this letter in 1 Timothy has been instructing on proper doctrine, about propositional truths, about God and about the church, about some propositional truths about the roles of men and women within the truth. There's to be unity among the Christians gathered together about, well, what makes a pastor and what makes a A deacon. Can you imagine how confusing it would be if we all had our personal opinions about what a pastor or what a deacon should be? So many churches across America and across Western society are divided because they're confused about that very point. What makes a pastor and what makes a deacon? And sadly, in recent in recent decades in Southern Baptist life, we've confused the role of deacon and pastor. Where deacons are seen as sort of spiritual leaders, they're the ones that the pastor answers to. My goodness gracious, you couldn't get so more upside down from the clear reading of Scripture than that kind of hierarchy. Bunch of old white men controlling the church. My goodness gracious. But as we look forward, we see particularly that that godliness and and doctrine was a central aspect of the life of every local church. Godliness particularly expressed in our relationships, as we'll see, to one another. In other words, Christianity, as rightly understood, pushes against a 21st century individualistic culture where life is all about me. You see, because you've been united together into a family where you have to deal and rub shoulders with and elbows with people who are not like you. You see, so often we try to create unanimity rather than unity in the gospel. We try to create culture here where we're all the same. And that sameness is what we think is the gospel. And all it it is, is we are just creating little mini-me's. But the gospel creates a diverse community that is united around propositional truth. It's the truth that unites us and the confession that we share. So this morning, we're going to think about together how the gospel informs our gathering together and particularly the scattering of the church throughout the week. In other words, if you think church is just what happens on the Lord's Day, you have misunderstood church entirely. If the only time you think about church is at 1030 on Sunday mornings, You are missing out on Christianity, brother, sister. Christianity is not merely an event to attend. Christianity is much richer than that. It's much fuller than that. Oh, how terrible it would be if all Christianity was, was some event that you attended when you had time. But it is a life that we live. It intersects every aspect of our lives such that widows are cared for and leaders serve well. It intersects every aspect of our lives. Well, with that in in mind, let's look here at 1 Timothy chapter 3. Again, the last couple of weeks we've been considering what godly leaders God has called to and equipped his church with, particularly the role of pastor and deacon in the life of the church, and that the, the main virtue of a qualified pastor, a qualified deacon, is not his ability to be a leader. He was to lead through godliness, right? It was the, same, it was the main characteristic we saw. The only thing that distinguished that of a pastor and a deacon was that of the ability to teach. But at the end of the day, what mattered most and who led was their character. And as we'll see this morning, so it is for every Christian. Look here at verse 14 of chapter 3. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may 
know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Paul puts forward this idea that the gathering of Christians in a local church exemplifies the truth of the gospel they confess through their shared commitment to godliness. In other words, the local church is to be a reflection of the gospel that they confess. It is to reflect the person work of Jesus Christ. And so for us this morning, we need to understand and commit to the centrality of the local church. The church is not something that is at the bottom of the list for a Christian. In fact, if you claim the name of Jesus, it ought to be at the top of the list. Because as you'll see this morning, it is the place where God displays his glory. God doesn't display his glory with you fishing on Sunday mornings. God's glory isn't displayed because you, you know, stayed up too late Saturday night and couldn't get to church on Sunday morning. God's glory isn't displayed by you merely attending and listening to the sermon. Or singing the hymns. That, that is not what God is glorified in. It is the gathering together of the saints. And so this morning, we're going to think about this morning, how, do, how does the church, how do we exemplify the gospel? Well, we see here first through our character of godliness. Our character of godliness. It's through our character, through our commitment to character, and particularly godly character, that we exemplify the gospel. We ought to care about character. Secondly, we'll see here in verse 15 that it is through our commitment to the truth. The church of the living God is to be the pillar and buttress of the truth. We have a commitment to the truth. We ought to be committed to truth and exposing all error. And third and finally, we see that we exemplify the gospel through our confession of Christ. We are confessional Christians, this is a confessional church. We believe a set of doctrines and we confess them together. So we want to think about each of these this morning. Number one, we see in verses 14 through 15 that the church exemplifies the gospel through our character of godliness. Notice what Paul writes. He says, listen, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that, ding, 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 purpose statement. Well, why did Paul pick up his pen to write to young Timothy? Well, he tells us right here in this verse why he's writing to Timothy. This is why. Timothy, put everything down and listen to me right now. Church, listen to me, he says. Church in Ephesus, listen to me. This is why I have written to your pastor. I want you to know... How, verse 15, how one ought to behave. Paul here is writing to a, to a group of preschoolers, apparently. He's writing to them and saying, listen, you need to behave in church. There's a certain way you ought to act in church. And every good mother knows that their little one needs to not squirm in the pew at church. Just sit still. My goodness, if you want to see how much answer in a kid's pants, just sit them in a pew. Apparently, there's a lot. They just can't sit still. Maybe it's the hard backs, all right, or something. They just can't sit still, right? No, how one ought to behave. Now, as we think about this particular passage, what we automatically, no doubt, in our minds, begin to think about a list of rules. Like, you can't drink coffee in the church because, well... I don't know, this 50-year-old carpet might get a stain on it. Okay. That's not at all what Paul... Oh, there's no running in church. No chewing gum in church. That's not what Paul is talking about. Rather, what Paul is after here is that of character. The character of a Christian is not an optional category. It's not something that we get to later. You know, so often we put sanctification at the end of life. We think, well, one day I'll, I'll get my act together. 
Not at all. If we've been born again, if we've been created new, then we ought to behave like we are. Paul would say it similarly in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1. He says this. He says, he says behave as children of God. Be imitators of God as beloved children. He says, act like your father. Your father is holy, so you ought to be holy. Well, this, of course, is the whole law. As God writes to the nation of Israel, he says, I am holy and you ought to be holy. In other words, the Israel was to be a reflection of the character of God. They were to be a light to the nations. But, of course, they weren't. They fell short. They fell into sin. Immediately after the giving of the law, what did they do? They fell headlong into idolatry. And that idolatry perpetuated through the book of Judges and through the kings. I mean, even their own leaders were full of idolatry and worship and sin. It was the prophets that preached and called them back to godliness and, and, and the character and holiness of God by upholding. So you consider Isaiah in that beautiful picture where he's beholding the holiness of God. And he says, man, I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips. I can't even go declare this message of holiness to your people. And God says, yes, you can, because I'm going to make you holy. And in a similar way, the church is to exemplify the holiness and holy character of God through our godliness. It is an essential matter. And again, it is not merely a list of rules to follow. Dressing a certain way or doing a certain behavior. Rather, it is about our character. It is much of the list that we've considered in the previous verses about being above reproach and the, uh, a man who's faithful, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, not a drunkard. All of these characteristics that we saw of leaders were to show up in the lives of the congregation. In other words, it is to be an outflow of the new life we, are, we have already in Christ that is demonstrated through changed behavior. Now, why is Paul so concerned about character? Well, we see here why. Notice what he says in verse 15. He says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave where? In the household of God. In other words, Paul has in mind a particular realm, a particular place. Now, again, he's not referring to a geographic location, but rather a participation in a family. Look what he says, in the household of God. Now, we've seen twice already in the last couple of weeks this, this language of household, oikos, the, the household. Now, the home for, uh, for this particular people would have included a, a mom and a dad and children and servants. And, and so it would have been much larger than the nuclear family. It might have included some grandparents, some aunts and uncles. It was a much larger sort of sphere. And so the, 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 the family here, the, this family idea is again presented by the Apostle Paul and saying that as Christians, we are a part of God's family. In other words, we could say that the church is a family. We, they're aunts and uncles, moms and dads, brothers and sisters. This is why Paul will tell young Timothy later, he says, listen, chapter 5, verse 1, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as or like what? You would a father and younger men as brothers and older women as mothers and younger women as sisters. In other words, he's saying, Timothy, you ought to see those around you in the church in relationship to them as brothers and sisters, moms and dads. And, and that relationship component should inform how you behave, how you treat one another, how you serve one another, how you love one another. Families have a high tolerance for pain, do they not? We tend to tolerate our own family members much more than we tolerate the wider culture and those around us. We put up with our family members and we despise our neighbors. And Paul here is using this language in a way to encourage us by reminding us that we are not alone, but together. That we ought to reflect the family character in our gatherings. 
because we're part of the family. John Stott says it this way, Paul emphasizes that as God's children, we have an equal dignity before him, irrespective of age, sex, race, or culture, and that as brothers and sisters, we are called to love, forbear, and support one another, enjoying, in fact, the rich one-anotherness of reciprocity of the Christian fellowship. We're family. Families take care of one another. They protect one another. They think about one another. They provide for one another. Even families that are dysfunctional, even families that have rough relationships, they still care for one another. Brothers and sisters, we're a family. We're part of a household. When you signed up for Christianity, you signed up for even the crazy uncles in Christianity. All right? You get them all. All right? You get everyone. And here's the point I think Paul is making. You need everyone. You can't do it alone. You were a part of a family. This is is to be a family. This is why Paul will go on to say there in verse 16. uh, Look at what he says, or verse 15, at the end of verse 15. He says that, that you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. That word church, the word that we use is ecclesia, the the gathering, the koinonia, the fellowship of the church. Fellowship so many times for us is is drinking Kool-Aid and eating stale cookies in the fellowship hall. That's not at all a New Testament understanding of, of togetherness, of family He describes it as the gathering together. The church is a gathering, all right? It's a coming together. This week, you're going to be celebrating Thanksgiving as Americans, right? A totally American thing, right? Totally American holiday. You've got to love it, right? Consumerism, all mixed into materialism. You've got to love what Thanksgiving is, right? But it's about getting together, right, with family. It's about getting together with loved ones, about sharing a meal together. Brothers and sisters, that is what the church ought to be, a gathering together around a table. And we do a table. We, we have a table where we all feast together and eat together and drink together and we celebrate together what we have in Christ. But notice he says that it is the gathering together, the coming together of a family who is that of the living God. In other words, God is alive today. He is not dead. He is ever active among his people. God is made manifest when we come together each week. It is not through the sacrament of right the table, but it is through the gathering together of the church that Jesus is made manifest. This is why, why gathering is essential. Imagine if we were to gather together, if we were to gather and someone was missing from the table, the sense of loneliness, the sense of loss that would be evident among us. And so that should be each week when we gather together. We need every single one, all hands on deck. Brothers and sisters, do not miss the point. Look at it again. I just want you to look again and hear it again. Look there at verse 15. How one ought to behave in the household of God, which is, that that is, the church is, this is what it is, which is the church of the living God. The living God is the one who who possesses the church. It's his church. And he uses this Old Testament language of the living God as opposed to dead idols. In other words, to stress some fear and reverence in those who understand this is God's deal, not yours. And how dare you complain about it? How dare you say you don't need it? How how prideful is it for us to say, oh, you know, if my schedule, if it all works out, I'll get up there and get involved. Did you not hear what it said? The church 
is possessed by the living God, the one who controls your heart beating, the one who gives you air to breathe. That's whom you're messing with when you mess with the church. And you think it's not important? It ought to instill some fear in us when we think we can tinker with the church. We can change the essential nature of the church. When we can say, hey, everybody's a part of the church. Or when we water down church membership and we think, oh, it's, it's a come all kind of thing. Not at all. It ought to be those who are regenerate, those who are born again, those who have received the life-giving spirit, those who have been marked off and gathered together. We ought to see the church as central in our lives. It ought to have a priority. And again, do not misunderstand. I do not mean merely gathering that is attending an event. What we are after here isn't you just sitting passively in a pew. Do you understand that what we do each week is gather together, united together to sing and to hear and to pray corporately? This is why we were committed through the COVID pandemic not to, for you to misunderstand what church is. It is a gathering, a physical gathering, because our God is a physical God. He's a living being, and it can't be communicated through some online platform, period. We can disagree about that all we want, but God has created us to be physical beings, to be present and not separated. And that's why we were committed to that. Even though it was painful that we weren't able to, that exile that we all felt those weeks where we weren't able to come physically together was good and instructive for each of us to remind us that God has created us to live in community together and not apart. And we ought to feel a sense of longing when through the providence of God we are separated. We think about those right now in our membership who because of physical ailments are unable to gather with us. That is the providence of God in their life. They are not sinning by not gathering. So do not misunderstand. However, there, there's that sense of longing and desire that is right and good that they have in their soul that they want to be here. And how sad it is for us. What a sad spiritual state when we just kind of brush off the gathering together of the saints on the Lord's day because we have other things to do on our schedule. Do, do, you, do you not understand how self-absorbed and self-centered that is? Because you think that the church is really all about you. And you don't understand that we need you and you need us. I've said this often. You know, we sing particular hymns here and songs and spiritual songs, not merely vertically to praise God, which we are, but horizontally to encourage one another. That's what we're doing. I, I, I mean, I'm a self-righteous sinner. I need to be reminded that it's not in me. And in my confession, no recitation of the truth, right? No Bible knowledge is going to get me saved. But it's only the blood of Jesus, right? I need to hear that. You need to hear that. John Stott, again, I think is so helpful here. Listen to what he writes. He says, every aspect of our common life is enriched by the knowledge of his presence in our midst. In our worship, we bow down before the living God. Through the reading and exposition of his word, we hear his voice addressing us. We meet him at his table. And when he makes himself known to us through the breaking of bread, in our fellowship, we love each other as he has loved us. And our witness becomes bolder and more urgent. Indeed, unbelievers come in and may confess that God is really among you. What a picture. What we do each week, brothers and sisters, that the world cannot replicate. And we ought to glory in the mystery of what God is doing each week. It, whether it's a small gathering or a large gathering, God's present there. God, the living God is with us today. Marvel in this mystery. Wonder in it. Celebrate it. When you love a brother sitting next to you or a sister next to you, when you open the word, you are manifesting the spirit of God among you. 
Brothers and sisters, our character matters. What we do here matters. This is why we ought to encourage one another to obedience and faithfulness in our regular conversations. This is why we ought to order our gatherings and our activities according to biblical standards. In other words, it's, it's not Pastor Rod and I sitting down and saying, man, what should we do this year? What kind of fun activities? Like we're like two youth pastors trying to come up with something to do for our kids. Not at all. It should be nose in the scriptures. What does God say we ought to be doing? What is it that the church is about? What is it as a congregation we should give ourselves to? The question for us as a congregation should never be, how can we make our church better? But it should always be, how can we make our church more biblical? Since we are part of what Paul describes as the household of God and the church of the living God, we ought to behave. We ought to order our lives according to the master's standard. He is the master of the home and his rules rule the day, not ours. Secondly, we see here in this passage in verse 15 that the church exemplifies the gospel through our commitment to the truth. Notice the third description of the church comes to us there again in verse 15, that the church is a pillar and buttress of the church of the truth. So he's described it as a household, a family. He's described it as the church or the gathering together of the living God, the manifestation. And here, thirdly, he says that it is a pillar and buttress of the truth. He's using architectural language here. Engineering terms to describe parts of a structure that give it support and a strong foundation. A pillar. We have them in our sanctuary this morning. Pillars hold up the ceiling from crashing down on us. But of course, there's also the foundation. These pillars are on pylons that are driven deep into the ground. They're on a firm foundation. If they were just bit on sand, they would crumble and fall, and then the roof would fall atop of us. We need both these, these pieces in order to shore up. But one thing we must not understand is that the church does not create or reveal the truth, rather give support to it. So it's not, this is kind of the old... Uh, you know, what the chicken or the egg conversation? You know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Does the church come first or the truth? No, not at all. The truth comes first. God reveals his truth to us and we lend support to the truth. We do not create the church. The church does not have authority over the truth. We don't decide what's in and what's out. We don't decide the canon of the scriptures, what chapters are in and what chapters are out rather it is God's revelation to us and we merely come along and give support to that which God has already revealed how do we do that well the church gives support to the revealed truth through the regular preaching and teaching of the truth we teach the truth we teach the truth. Look, notice again, the words matter here in this passage. A pillar and buttress of truth, a truth, some truth, definite article, the truth. There's only one truth. I remember Jesus there before Pilate. Pilate asked him, he's like, what's truth, right? It's a great relative question, isn't it? It's the, it's the question that humanity has asked since the garden. What's really true? There is definitive truth. And so the church supports the truth by by preaching the truth. We don't preach our own messages. What we ought to do is, is to give support from the scriptures. One author describes much of evangelical preaching like a drunk man leaning against a light pole. He uses the text more for support than for illumination. You get it? In other words, a drunk man leaning against a light pole isn't using the light pole to get light, but for support. In other words, supporting what? His own position to supporting his own drunkenness. Rather, what we ought to use this scripture is for illumination. To understand and to know God better. John Calvin says it this way, it is not the church, goes on to write, he says, it is not the church, is not the church, the mother of all believers, 
Because she brings them to new birth through God's word, teaches them and feeds them through their lives and strengthens and leads them finally to complete perfection. In other words, the church has a role in the life of every Christian. That apart from the church, we are depraved, we are, we are hungered, we are thirsty. And, and sadly, so many Christians are starving because they are not fed properly. What we ought to strive for as a congregation is to have teachers who are able to teach. Apt to teach means that, not that he is a great communicator, in other words, that he can, he can speak eloquently, but that when he speaks, people listen and follow. That's what makes a one apt to teach. Brothers and sisters, we ought to have a shared commitment to the truth. We are committed to the truth. This is not merely the task of the leaders of the church, but it is the responsibility of Jordan. It is the responsibility of the individual members. What we believe matters. We ought to hold each other to our shared theological commitments. We ought to Think about what is it that we believe together and then hold each other accountable to what we believe. We should care about the morality of members, but also the theology of members. All right, We care about that together. I care about what you believe about God and about sin and about salvation and about the end times. I care about those things. We ought to care about things. We ought to talk about these things. We ought not to be afraid that, oh, these are just, you know, big headed ideas, but rather we ought to have conversations about the the finer details of what we believe because we as a church give support to it. We ought to see, as Calvin said there in that quote, as a place where we feed each other. Brothers and sisters, we feed one another. Man, families feed, right? If, you're, man, if your family's like my family, we just like eat. That's all we do, right? Like you, I mean, we get together as a family, like with my parents or something. It's like we just eat from the time we get together to the time we leave. My goodness gracious. Why? There, there's a sense of community around food. People uh, gather around food. That's God's created us that way. Well, Do you understand that analogy carries over to the scriptures? When we get together, we ought to be feeding one another the word. That that means we ought to have scripture upon our lips when we are encouraging one another, when we're giving counsel to one another. It ought not to be our, our good sage wisdom that we've gathered in this world, but rather ought to be the scripture we carry with us. The church ought to be the pillar and buttress of the truth by having a central role in upholding the truth through the regular preaching of God's word. It, look, I love the six seminaries we have as Southern Baptists. They are the foremost seminaries in all the world. I mean, not even just, I'm not being kind to them. They are the, the top leading seminaries, evangelical seminaries in all of the world. All right. Some of the top scholarship in all of Christianity is gathered in those six seminaries. But brothers and sisters, they are not and they have not. and They do not understand themselves to be given the responsibility to be the pillar and buttress of the truth. This church and every other gospel preaching church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. We ought to understand that is our responsibility. What truth then unites us? Well, we see here finally, and very quickly, we'll run through these, that the church exemplifies the gospel through our confession of Christ as Lord. Notice what Paul writes. He says, great indeed is the mystery of godliness. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. We confess. What is it that we confess? Well, Paul here uses this language of mystery, the mysterion. Now, Paul language usage here doesn't mean that it's a secret that nobody knows, but rather it was an unknown plan that God has now revealed. In other words, the gospel is not something that man could have figured out on their own. You, you see, this is, this might, you might get it later in the day and it like comes to you, right? This is one of those like head scratcher moments, right? You kind of think about it a little bit. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not something that you could have set in meditation on and it pop in your brain and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good plan. Let's do that. 
It is so mysterious. That's how Paul's using this. It's so unknown and unable for humanity to figure it out apart from God telling them. It's kind of like you would never find Waldo unless someone pointed it out to you. You would have never have guessed. No human being... Paul is saying, would have ever guessed that God would have eternally sent his own son to die as a sacrifice for rebellious sinners. No one would have guessed that. No one would have figured it out. More than that, no one would have ever figured it out that God would send his son to die and to raise from the dead and declare triumph over sin and death. In other words, no one in the garden to now would have ever thought that death could be overcome. No scientist today with the biggest PhD they could hang on their wall would ever say to you that it is possible for a dead man to come alive. And that's a good thing because it is impossible apart from the, the, the act of a, of a living God. There's a mystery in it. Glorious. Great, that's why he says it's great. Great indeed is this mystery of godliness. Sinners become saints. That aliens and strangers become in part of the family. That we're not, brothers and sisters, we're, we're not just invited into the family and says like, all right, you sit over there at the, you know, the kids' table. No, 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 no. He says, come on and sit at the big table. You come and sit with me once you were an enemy. Once you wanted to destroy me. But, but now you get to feast and break bread with me. There's a great confession that we have, isn't it? That God has done this. What has he done? Well, he says there in verse 16 what he's done, isn't it? He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Oh, if you want a sweet Sunday afternoon meditation, just think on these words. He's referring to Jesus here. That he is a reference to Jesus. And you could think this divided and maybe into two parts. You see kind of two stanzas there. First, a focus on the humanity of Christ. And then secondly, the triumph of Christ. You could think of it the humiliation of Christ in verse 16b, kind of that first stanza. And then secondly here, the triumph of Christ over sin and death in the second. Regardless of how you divide it up, you see six distinct parts of this early confession. Perhaps an early hymn that was known to the church. You'll be reminded if you understand the historic context of this. Church is in Ephesus. Great. One of the seven wonders of the world is in Ephesus. The the shrine to the goddess Artemis. This wondrous area. This confession of this great deity and this great God. And Paul comes along and he says, oh, there is something much greater here. He goes on. First, the incarnation of Christ. He was manifested in this flesh. He was revealed, manifest, meaning to reveal, make known. God entered into human history. He revealed himself in the flesh, it says, not by the spirit. Jesus was not merely a spirit. He was a flesh and blood human. He was In the words of the great R.C. Sproul, he was truly God and truly man. He wasn't some half man and half God kind of mixture. He was a full human being, just as you are, complete. As John 1.14 reminds us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Or as Peter who knew Jesus and walked with Jesus and shared meals with Jesus. He says this about Jesus, that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you. Through him are believers in God. In other words, Jesus was a real life, blood beating person. I love the the, the way that the apostle John does it in 1 John chapter 1. 
In 1 John chapter 1, he uses all of these uh, senses, the, the, the human senses like touch and taste and feel and, and smell. He, he, he says, listen, you want to know if Jesus is real? He says, listen to this. He says, we have heard his voice. We heard it. My ears heard his lips speak. I, I heard that, that Galilean accent. I, I heard him teach and talk. And, and we've seen him with our eyes. My eyeballs saw him. We looked upon him and, and more than that, he says, I, I use my fingers, that, that sense that God has given us of touch to know if something's real. I might be blind, I might be deaf, but I felt him. He was a physical being. Jesus Christ was manifest in the flesh. Paul here is confessing, and our confession together is that Jesus Christ came in the flesh because he came as a representative for us fleshly people. Jesus Christ came and incarnated himself in human flesh so that he might die as a substitute for humans. Secondly, we see here that he was vindicated by the spirit. In other words, he was proven by the spirit. Now, this could be a reference to a number of of aspects of Jesus's ministry. Perhaps most would have been at his birth. Remember, we're entering into that season, right? About the angels. Declaring glory to God in the highest. Glory, the, 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 uh, the, the spirit and the angels testifying. Also, Matthew chapter 3. Remember at Jesus' baptism, the spirit here. Declaring. Beholding the spirit of God descended like a dove upon Jesus and rested upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven declares, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Or as Romans chapter 1 says, and was declared by the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The spirit was the one that resurrected Jesus from the dead and vindicated, proved that what he did was accomplished. You know, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, what he did on the cross is completely and utterly meaningless. Completely meaningless. You see, the resurrection of Christ proves that he has power and authority over sin and death. That sin and death did not defeat him, but rather he defeated it. And so the spirits raising Jesus proves his power and authority. And then thirdly, here we see the resurrection. I kind of got ahead of myself a minute ago about the angels. He was seen by angels. A testimony that he was seen by angels or messengers. In other words, a picture that Jesus Christ was witnessed by the angels post-resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about the countless dozens that witnessed Jesus. Even in that passage I read a moment ago from 1 John, a reference to the fact that the apostles touched Jesus. He was alive again. All of this points to the person and work of Christ and what we confess, what we believe, and what Christians historically have held to be orthodox. What we confess in, in the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed is the person of Jesus. But it isn't merely that Jesus came, that Jesus was a good man, that he was a moral, morally upright human, and that we ought to follow his good examples. No, Paul goes on, doesn't he? Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. The the language that Paul is picturing here isn't just merely of a noble and righteous man teaching people how to be good people. Rather, notice what he says. He says one who is proclaimed among the world, heralded among the world. The language here is one of a a victorious king declaring victory over his enemies. One of the the roles of the apostolic witness was to go around across the known world and declare, put an outpost in that place. We use language today like embassies. An embassy declares, an embassy, you know, so across this world are American embassies, United States embassies. And that little piece and plot of dirt has an American flag on it. And that land is sovereign land to the United States. It's their land. 
And, and as an American citizen, when you step onto that, you, that you are safe, right? You're, 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 you're like, woo, nobody can get me. I'm home. I'm safe. It says, if you were stepping on one of the soils here in the continental United States or in one of the territories, it says, if you were standing on the same soil you stand on today, regardless of where you are. And what the apostles' ministry was in the name of Jesus was to go around and plant flags and declaring victory over that land. Not over the physical geography of the land, but over people. So Paul would say this to the church in Corinth, that, or the church in Colossae, that this gospel that you heard and that was proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a servant. Paul will go on to say that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is a, is a transaction where one is transferred from one kingdom to another. The gospel is a proclamation of victory over that person, saying that that person is no longer captive of the enemy, but is now captive to Christ. Proclaimed among the nations. Believed on in the world. Believed on is a phrase of that of authority. That he was believed on, he was trusted in, that he was dependent on. That is, it wasn't that, yeah, we think Jesus is a king, but that Jesus is my king. That he has authority over my life. That's what the gospel says. The gospel is not merely some assent to theological truth. Like, okay, I'm giving mental assent to these set of facts about God. But rather, a surrender to those facts. Saying, yes, he is God. Yes, he is king. And I'm going to do what he says. As Paul would say to the church in Philippi, therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is about confessing that Jesus is Lord, that he's in charge, that I'm not. So not only is it a transfer of kingdoms that we're transferring from the kingdom of of sin and darkness and transferring ourselves to this new kingdom, or rather we are being transferred, we don't transfer ourselves, um, that, that God is transferring us. But in that process, we are laying down our own authority. We are saying that I'm not king anymore. I'm not going to run my life the way I want to anymore, but rather King Jesus will. Notice here in this passage, it is where the the realm of which this works. It is not relegated and limited to one geographic place or to one people group. That Jesus is a sovereign king over the, the, the nations. That he is planting his flag among every people group that has ever spoken in this place. It is a universal kingdom. It is is a kingdom over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And finally, we see the final moment of, of triumph was at the ascension of Christ. Taken up in glory. The picture here that Paul paints is of the ascension of Christ where where he is declaring himself to be the high and lifted up one. The one who has supreme authority. The one whom will return in the same way he left. One who is ascended high above all else. This is our shared confession, brothers and sisters. What we believe matters. Our souls ought to soar. Our our hearts might, must be encouraged and our, I think our countenance uplifted as we consider these words. These are written to a particular people in a historic time in which there was Caesar who was the great king and Artemis who was the great goddess. And it ought to be a reminder to us in our shared confession this morning that it does not matter who is king of our land for Jesus is king of the world. It ought to be a reminder, something I was dwelling on, thinking about COVID, the pandemic. Thinking about those early days in the midst of that. Thinking about the way God sustained his church through that. 
thinking about all of the chaos and the lost lives and the brokenness and the bitterness and the division and and just to see the ravages that it's left globally, but also particularly here in our own context of just thinking through all of that. And, I, and I, it struck me this morning as I thought about this and, and just, just trying to recount some of the facts of the, of, the, of the whole thing and how it unfolded. I was reminded that none of this was ever, ever a surprise to God. It wasn't as if God was like, whoa, I didn't expect that. Wow, that caught me by surprise. I just wondered how much God had for decades prior been preparing his people for what they have and are still enduring. Only eternity will tell the way God had prepared churches financially prepared Christians particularly to endure the loss of loved ones, the loss of lives around them. There's all of, of the, the ways that this is touched. It, it reminded me that, yeah, Jesus is king over time in history. He's really in control. He really is the risen and ascended Lord. And no pandemic can stop him. He's still working and saving lives. And his mission goes forward. Brother, sister, he has power and authority over this world and particularly over this church. And we ought to submit to his authority by obeying his commands. Our confession gives us confidence in the midst of a dark and ever-changing world. Friend, this world isn't going to slow down, all right? It's, it's at light speed, and, and, and it's at cruising altitude, all right? It's not coming down anytime soon. But God, in His perfect timing, will bring the world to His appointed ends. And this dark world will come to an end and he will proclaim its its victory and final victory over it. And we ought to be reminded that he is sovereign over it. And he has sent us out into this dark world to proclaim and to put his flag among every tribe, tongue and nation, among your friends and family, among your neighbors and co-workers. You have a confession to make among them. You have a responsibility to declare that Jesus is Lord. Great indeed, brothers and sisters. Great indeed, we confess as the mystery of godliness. As a church, we ought to regularly confess this singular truth of the triumph of the person work of Jesus Christ over our lives and over all those. There is no one too far, too far gone, too sinful that Jesus cannot save. And he can save you this morning if you'll only believe in him. The church is a gathering of local blood-bought brothers and sisters who exemplify the gospel through our shared commitment and our shared confession. We ought to live high and holy lives in the regular gathering of God's people as well as in our ongoing discipleship. We ought to see this is vital and essential to us getting to heaven Our shared life together must exemplify the gospel through our commitment to godly character, through our commitment to the revealed truth, and through our shared confession. I end with this quote from our elder brother, Martin Luther. Luther once said that at home, in my own house, there's no warmth or vigor in me. In other words, at home, he was cold and drafty old house but in the church when the multitude is gathered together a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through brother sister i hope that's your confession each week that you gather with the lord's people on the lord's day and your soul is rekindled and you're ready to take on another week And draw one more day and one more week closer to that celestial city. Let us help one another get there sooner. For God's glory, let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your grace and the mercy we have through Christ and for the tremendous gift of this local church that we might use the gifts you've given us not for our own selfish ends, but rather to be producers, to help others get to heaven. Help us use the gifts you've given us to support your word, to live godly lives, and to continue to confess Jesus as Lord until he comes again. That is our prayer for your glory and our eternal good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.